so we're continuing this theme we're calling Spark, and I'd like us to sit with this this morning in the moments we have here with the idea that a spark, our spark for the present, it'll increase in strength when we start to uh, gain a, a strong sense of vision for the future God has for us. That our present will be directly impacted by the way we see our future unfolding, especially when our journey becomes a faith journey and God becomes a part of that journey. That he longs to speak to us about the future in such a way that it directly impacts the the passion and the life and the way we are present in the moments we have here. And I got to say, this idea of a future, wanting to be a place where God speaks into, um, it means something to me, perhaps more now than, than ever before. Because Father's Day, this Father's Day, it's an interesting one for us as a family. It's the first one because of our daughter that I get the privilege of moving from celebrating my, my dad and my grandfather and, and the fathers that I have in my life that have impacted me to becoming part of the celebration. And uh, for the first time, you know, that becomes something of an experience. And it makes this idea of the future, of aspirations and dreams and desires, it, it, it makes it a little bit more personal. See, my journey into parenthood that has just begun um, has, it had an interesting beginning. My wife and I, I remember a, a, just about, it was definitely last year, we discovered that uh, we were expecting parents and we were excited as any parents would be. And there was a timeline where we went in and we received tests and we were really excited to discover we were going to have a little girl. Well, I was more um, s sobered and, and then excited, uh, but we were very excited and uh, and very expectant. And then through the course of different exams and you know, ultrasounds, um, there came a point where the, the doctors expressed a degree of concern. And they weren't as enthusiastic as my wife and I were feeling. And they ended up bringing in another medical professional. And they came in, and they took us to a different room. And they started talking to us about a condition that they saw our daughter was going to have. And they said, this condition that she's going to have it's going to create a challenge in her life. She's going to need, she's going to have some special needs that are going to emerge. And we're not going to know exactly how they're going to happen. In fact, any child that is walking through life with this, they, they have um, a wide spectrum, they said. They could go from being completely dependent on their parents for really for life the, the entire course of their life, or they can go from that extreme to the other extreme where there have been many cases in which adults have uh, been discovered to have this same condition and no one would have ever known it. They, could, they look indistinguishably normal and typical. And the main impact is that it will end up creating uh, a challenge in development. And we don't know what that looks like. And we don't know exactly what, um, how this is going to unfold, but we know that development will be delayed. And uh, there are so many variables. And so after telling us this, we're sitting here and we're kind of just considering what this all means. My wife and I are sitting there and the medical professionals, which I believe it's, it's their part of their job, their duty, they ended up suggesting that uh, we consider terminating the pregnancy. And I got to tell you, as uh, faith-filled Christ followers who are convinced that God is the one who gives life, who breathes life into every human being, 
that he puts not only life into a person's body, but he is the one who, who knits them and he fearfully and wonderfully makes them and he imprints his own image on every single person. We just thought that's not an option. But what it did do is in that moment of celebration and expectancy, of considering this exciting new adventure in our lives as a couple and now becoming parents, what it did do is it caused us to make a conscious choice about the future. Because what was not expected and what was not desired and what we had not planned had now just come knocking on our door. And I remember being in that place of reconsidering, what does this mean? What does this mean for us as parents? What, what is life going to be like? Well, we, there are so many unknowns. And so what started to creep in was a degree of uncertainty and doubt. Some degree of discouragement started to become part of our experience. And I have to tell you, in those moments, in those days, and in, in that season, something became rather clear to me. I needed to get an idea of what the future looked like in order to actually be able to walk out in the present. I needed something in my, in my own life, in our own life as a, as a couple. We needed to start to grab a grip on, Lord, what is it that you have in store? And how is that supposed to impact me today? Because if that was not there, you know what? It made the present very challenging. And, you know, I share that. I share that because I think it is a picture of what life is like, is it not? We have our plans. We have our dreams and our aspirations. We have our goals. We have our pursuits. And we have our ideals. And then reality comes knocking. Doesn't it? It's funny how that happens every single time. And very few times do things unfold exactly how they're supposed to go. And the truth is, look, life can become something rather challenging when we start to move into the future, looking at it through this lens of uh, losing hope, of feeling like the obstacles perhaps are too great, maybe what we're doing is not going to make a difference, wondering if nothing will ever change. And in that place of losing a sense of faith in the future we're walking into, you know what can end up happening? One for sure thing is inevitable. We can become complacent, if not something worse. And we can start to move through the motions if we're not careful, or perhaps eject ourselves in our own way and seek to escape what is actually real in front of us. All the while, just drifting rather than moving towards something God may have for us. And perhaps this is why I love, love the scriptures. And in particular, I love the prophets of the Older Testament because they seem to have, not completely, they're not perfect, but they seem to have in their lives and in their journeys, they seem to have a grip on reality. They're not in denial. They're not pretending everything is going to be okay. They know exactly what's going on or they have a very clear picture of it. And on the other hand, they have a grip on the goodness of God that gives them hope and faith and strength. And they seem to be able to walk this tension out in a way that I think, well, I just think we can all use. 
has the capacity to give us strength. In fact, if you open up your handout, I'd love for us to explore a passage that's found in the book of 2 Kings. It's in the Older Testament. And this account is about a man named Elisha who was a prophet. He was in the final days of his life. And Elisha, just so we understand what we're going to interact with here, Elisha was a spokesman for God for about 60 years. And there was a new king on the throne of Israel who had come to see him as a sense of security and stability. Elisha was not only one who spoke for God, but he also represented something of the, of the Lord's goodness over Israel. That if Elisha was present, there was a sense that God is with us. And that gave the kings and the nation a degree of comfort and security. And so in the final days of Elisha's life, the king Jehoash ends up getting moved to enter into a point of paying him respect. But you could see it also. He's considering what a future without Elisha looks like. And he doesn't like it. It's not what he maybe had desired. And we're told in verse 14 that when Elisha was in his last illness, that's the scripture's way of saying this would be the final days of his life. King Jehoash of Israel visited him and wept over him. And he said, my father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioteers of Israel, he cried. It's in a, a way of saying is he, he was saying, you represent the Calvary, the best our nation has to offer. The largest source for security because of you. Josephus would say, the ancient historian, he says, because of him, they had never had to use arms against their foe. But through his words, they were able to overcome the enemy without ever having to have physical battle. Elisha was now departing this life and leaving him unarmed before the Syrians, the kingdoms around them, the Assyrians and the Syrians, and the enemies under them. This, this is why the king was crying, we're told, that he sits there, he's grieving. On one hand, the loss of one he had come to know and love as his sage, his guide, but then also recognizing that the loss of Elisha also meant a vacuum in his own life. And the, you get the sense that the king is not just crying over Elisha, he's also crying over his future and what that means and the weight he will have to bear and the sense of insecurity his nation will face and the uncertainty that all of a sudden becomes all too real. He's crying over the prophet, and it seems that the prophet, seeing this, is stirred in his soul with perhaps a final instruction, a word of direction for this king. And he says to him in verse 15, Elisha told him, get a bow and some arrows. And the king did as he was told. He may have had them in the room, in the upper room where he, the prophet was laying on his deathbed, or perhaps he got them from his security detail, but we're told he makes his way, he gets the arrows, he gets the bow, comes back into the room, and then Elisha told him, verse 16, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And so he, he tells him, he instructs him, the king stands next to his bed. He says, now put your hands on the bow, and he puts his hands on the bow. And then Elisha puts his hands on the king signifying some degree of symbolic nature of what, what is about to happen. He's trying to transfer something. He's trying to give him something. He's trying to have solidarity with him. He says, now, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to open the eastern window 
and he opened it. And then he said, I want you to shoot your arrow. And so he shot an arrow. And Elisha proclaimed, this, this arrow is uh, the Lord's arrow. It's an arrow of victory over Aram, for you will completely conquer the Arameans at Aphek. In other words, the accompanying prophetic words predict, in spite of the oppression the king is very well aware of, Israel will overcome and revive one day. They will be able to overcome their enemies. Elisha is essentially saying to the king, listen, this, this, I want you to open up the eastern window and I want you to shoot. I want you to shoot an arrow into time. Beyond the days, I will be here with you. I want you to shoot an arrow of faith. And I want you to recognize that this arrow is going to create, a, it's meant to help you see a different future than the one you're seeing. That there is something that uh, if, if you could almost sense it, that Elisha is trying to tell him, trust me when I tell you, the Lord sees a future of victory for you. I know all you see is concern and grief and loss. All you see is anxiety and fear. All you see is what cannot happen or what is possible. To come against you, but I want you to start seeing something different. Shoot that arrow. And as it goes over the eastern side, and as it goes further and further out of sight, I want you to understand that that is what God is capable of. He can create a future beyond what you can see that is far better than you believe. Will you do that? He does it. It's just now. On the other side of this word, perhaps not fully understanding the magnitude of what the king has just heard. Perhaps wanting to impress upon him even further something that he needs to incorporate into how he is walking this out. He asks the king, he says then in verse 18, he says, now I want you to pick up the arrow, other arrows and I want you to strike them against the ground. I want you to get the rest of the arrows, king, king of Israel. And I want you to strike them against the ground. So we're told... In kind of just black and white terms, the king picked them up and struck the ground three times. No real description is given. The sense that we are given, though, is that this king who was much younger, who came to pay his respects, who was grieving, who was certainly focused on his own loss, who was used to treating himself with self-importance and dignity, who had a degree of regal nature to him, you get the sense he kind of just went through the motions. And so shooting an arrow, well, who wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, I'll do that. I'll shoot the arrow. That has a word. Yes, it does. And then go grab the other arrows. I'll grab the other arrows. What do you want me to do? I want you to hit the ground. You want me to hit the ground? Yeah, I want you to strike the ground. Okay. I'm going to respect the elderman. The sage on his final day is fine. And you get the sense he, he gets down and he just. I guess three is enough. Is that good? Is that what you wanted? Right? Uncertain. Not knowing exactly what this all meant. Perhaps filled with skepticism and doubt. Not recognizing what he had just heard. And the significance of what was going on. Maybe not wanting to become the undignified king. Maybe not wanting to leave his position and how he saw his office to be carried out. Perhaps in that place, 
We're told that he does this. He strikes the ground three times, somewhat complacently. And there we're told in verse 19. And why do we know that he did it somewhat complacently? Because we're told that the man of God was angry with him. That the prophet ended up saying to him, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Three? Really? You had so much more in you. At least five or six. You could have gone for it. But now because you didn't. Then you would have beaten Aram until it was entirely destroyed, but now you will be victorious only three times. It's almost as if Elisha, some have said, he was mad because the king, he saw in the king's display of treating this menial, seemingly meaningless task so, well, carelessly. He saw inside of him something of a lack of grit and determination. And he became angry in his soul. And it's almost as if... um, He was trying to transfer passion to the king. And that is an amazing picture to me. It's an amazing picture. The man at the end of his life, after serving for six decades, lying on his deathbed, ill, is seeking to transfer life and passion to the young king who had the rest of his future ahead of him. Can you see it? Uh, The contrast, it's there. It's there. You could see it. If anyone deserved, look, if anyone deserved to have self-pity, it would be the dying prophet. Right? If anyone deserved to bemoan the fact that he was breathing his final breaths on earth, it would be the dying prophet. And yet, what does Elisha do? Elisha was fixated on the future of his people. And he was gripped with what? Hope and faith. I'm looking into the future, king. And I see something good. I see, I see good. You can see the king, on the other hand, who had the ability to impact that future, to step into that future, to do something about it. What was he? He was rendered passive, somewhat insecure, self-pitying in his assessment. Not sure how to navigate this. Complacent at best. Elisha was the one dying. He was ill. But he had more life flowing through his veins. Can you see it? It's an amazing contrast. And the king, who was young and healthy, and had position of power, you know what? He, he had half-hearted willingness to leave it all on the field, as it were. Yeah, it might have been, looked like it didn't mean much, but it showed something of his, of his character. That Elisha was trying to put his finger on. Indeed, he did. Don't go half-heartedly. Don't do it. Why? You should have put everything you had in there. The prophet is on fire. (laughs) A great picture of what mature, seasoned faith creates. His spark, it didn't dwindle. It grew. And the king... He's lukewarm at best, perhaps cold. Prophet's fire would not be put out even in his final days. And this is why I think this is so significant for us. I think I am convinced God wants us to live each day with a degree of intensity, drive, and passion in our present. with The same degree that Elisha demonstrated in his final days. Can you hear it? That when God becomes a part of our life, you know, part of what he wants to transform us into are people who can see, the seers, they were called. 
who can see into the future, and they don't see exactly denial. They're not denying reality, but they're seeing something of God's activity, and that inspires them every step of the way. That even though their circumstances may not be ideal, and they may not be great, they may not be one one wished, there is something that is meant to inform from the future into the present. He says, yeah, can you get that, king? It doesn't matter. It might be might mean you might need to be indignified at times or break out of your comfort. You might need to take a risk. You might need to trust in the one who is calling you. Yes, it might seem meaningless, but if you do it, if you do it with all your heart, can you see? There's something there. Elisha was more alive. <laughs> I just can't, I'll say it again. The dying prophet was more alive than the young king all because of the way the future was viewed. I just think so many times, this is, can't impress it enough, our spark for the present, it will increase when we gain a strong sense of the future God has for us. So how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it, especially when the future seems bleak? How do we move from a place of not wanting to see what, what is present, not believing that it's actually going to pan out well, to move to a place where even, even though our bodies are humbling us and illnesses are taking over us, we are still in our soul fully alive? How do we do that? I think one of the things that Elisha demonstrates that I think this kind of reminds us to do is to tighten our grip. I'm going to put it up there to tighten our grip on the future God has for us. That is to say, to start defining it for ourselves. What is it? To grab a hold of it, to seek it out, to put some texture on it, to be able to define it, to be able to put it into words for us. God, what is your future for my life? What is the vision of the life you're asking me to pursue? You're asking me to build. You're asking me to lean into. What does that look like? That there is something in grabbing a hold of that, that all of us, by the way, are responsible for doing. That it ends up fueling our soul with what we need to be able to move forward. Look at what uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 29. He says, when, when people do not accept divine guidance, and I asked them for this translation, I thought, man, that, that is a great way to put it. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. And another version says they lose restraint. But whoever obeys the law is joyful, expectant, hopeful. The idea is that a vision of what God is wanting to do in our lives, you know what it does? It increases restraint, calm, peace, discipline. It's closely connected to a willingness to say, Lord, what are you wanting to do in my life? in my future. So how, how do we um, receive divine guidance? Well, I think, number one, we, we have to understand that um, his word, a, a, a ritual, a habit of digesting his word in our lives gives us the capacity to receive instruction. It may not be detailed like uh, we're used to receiving on a map app, but it is powerful enough like a compass to direct us, to point us, to guide us. His word, as we become more familiar with it, and as we understand it, you know what it does? It starts to reveal something of what he wants to do in our lives personally. And to read it, not just 
going through the motions, but to be fully present when we engage with his word and we invite God, will you speak into my situation through what I'm reading? Will you do that? To be intentional. We can also not just seek his word, but to seek counsel from those who have been walking with him for a little bit longer than us. To seek counsel from those who have been able to consistently follow him, not perfectly, no one ever will. But to, get, to, to seek out people who have a, a, a distinguished sense of resolute devotion. And they've demonstrated it through the highs and the lows of their lives. This is why, by the way, one of the beautiful things of our church is that we have multi-generations in one community. Where we have the access to be able to garner wisdom from another generation who has walked through similar situations. And to be able to weigh down. What is the difference? The king who is young is anxious and fearful. The prophet who is seasoned. He's hopeful and optimistic and alive. Oh, the beauty of counsel. The beauty of being able to receive it from those who may be a tad more mature than us. And then I have to say, there's just nothing replacing the individual desire to ask God, Lord, will you show your will for me? For my life, will you show me your will? To prayerfully ask him, show me, God. I believe you're alive. I believe you're, you have a plan. So what does that look like for me? Because I've discovered that uh, a lot of times we may not get direct revelation like King Jehoash got. We won't be able to go to some sage in his upper room and cry at his feet and have him do some symbolic gestures and that means exactly this. I mean, that would be cool. But it doesn't happen. You know what normally happens? What normally happens is that we start to invite God into our lives and we start to ask him to unfold his future for us. And you know what happens? He will start to speak to us very directly, not exactly all the time about the circumstances we're going to step into. I won't say he doesn't. It just doesn't typically happen. Normally, it's not going to be the domino effect, and this is exactly how this is all going to pan out. These are the sequence of events, and this is the future you're going to step into. That's actually far less normal. But what is more normal is that he will begin, to, as we consider our future and we invite him into it, you know what he starts to say? This is the person I want you to be in that future. And so I want you to start becoming that person. I want to speak to you about who you will be in your future. I want, he, he will start to speak to us about the people, the father, the husband, the friend, the coworker, the son, the daughter, the person that we are meant to become in our future. Our future may not be certain in terms of the circumstances, but what is certain is who he wants us to become. And when we start to get a hold of what he is asking us into, you know what happens? It's almost as if he, we start to ask, Lord, then who do you want me to be? Who do you want me to be tomorrow? Who do you want me to be at the end of this year? Who do you want me to be next year? Who do you want me to be in the next season of my life? And we start to see that. You know what? We, we start to recognize God whispers to us. Look at how Paul put it. I love the message translation. 
I asked him to put this up there, that when, we, when faith comes alive in us and faith becomes a part of our journey, you know what happens? Nothing exists between us and God, Paul says. But our face is shining with brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah. Our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful. Look at as God enters our lives and we become like him. That something about our future is always meant to be beautiful, reflecting his goodness. Why? Because as we invite him into our lives, he starts to show us a picture of this is who you will be like. This is what it would look like. <laughs> to me, I, I know for, for a fact, my wife and I, we can't dictate the circumstances, every detail, or exactly how this will pan out for our daughter. There's just no way. There is no way. But we can start to ask the Lord, what kind of parent do you want us to be for our daughter? Who do you want us to become? It's not exactly how we saw it happening. So what is it that you're having in mind for our future? What does that mean for our marriage? What does that mean for my friendships and relationships? You see, who are you wanting to build through this? What does this look like? So when we start to ask that question, we start to discover an enormous amount of empowerment as we, we recognize that our future, look, our future is built in the present one step at a time. Our future is built in the present one step at a time. It's, it's so obvious. It's so simple. If only it were so easy. Why is it worth stating that? Because sometimes the strength of our faith can become overwhelmed by the prospects, look, of, a f- of what the future has in store. The challenges can seem to uh, be larger than our capacity. We can doubt if we have the ability to endure. We can start to feel like we never get traction, and we can start to feel like no matter how much energy we put in, we don't really get the results we desire. Something inside of us starts to wonder if what we are doing is meaningless or if it's not actually producing anything. And then, and then added to that, we can start to compare ourselves with other people's journey, and we can start to see like they are getting further ahead than myself, and so why should I even try? And that is very easy to slip into that way of thinking and way of viewing the future. Because when the future, look, when the future is viewed without hope, oh, it zaps us of the capacity to impact the very future we're stepping into. We need, look, we need, anxiety may rob us of recognizing our role to impact our future, but we need to believe in our present like our lives depended on it because they do. And not just our lives, but those who depend on us. And those who count on us, they depend on it. And there's something of a requirement in this journey of faith that requires us to be willing to lay it all on the line today. Today, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year, not next season, not when I get around to it, but today, right now, there are certain things that it, 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 they are arrows in our hands that we know, 
We know God has whispered into our soul, do this. And rather than doing it half-heartedly, there is something inside of us that is supposed to do it with everything we got. And we push against whatever doubt, whatever fear we might feel. And we're going to say, you know what? It doesn't matter if I look undignified. I'm going to go for it. And I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to do everything I can today, right now. I'm going to love, I'm going to serve, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to move forward, I'm going to show up, I'm going to sing, I'm going to do whatever, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read your word, I'm going to go for it, I'm going to lay it all in line. And we do that. Oh, that is what Elisha was trying to tell the king. You do that. You do that. You'll overcome. You do that. And uh, we'll start to discover what Jesus said, he who is faithful in little, he will become faithful in much. We'll discover the joy of the prophet said, don't ever, don't ever minimize the day of small beginnings. Because if you remain faithful with everything you got, you will rejoice at the harvest. And it doesn't matter. Because the future we're trying to build is we become more willing to endure inconvenient, seemingly meaningless tasks, responsibilities. And I just wonder, look, when we do that, when we leave it all on the field, I wonder, where is that place right now where we would say God has a victory for us, but what he's asking of us is in this commitment, in this area, will you do everything you can today? Will you put into action what I've asked of you? Hold nothing back. Will you do it? Because if you do that, we'll discover that God wants a better future for us than we can ever imagine. <laughs> this, is, this is why I believe the prophet was filled with so much life. It's what Paul said. That is what the scriptures say when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There is no possible way. When God is invited into our lives, listen, our past may be messy. Whose isn't? Our present may be challenging. And our future may look bleak, but if God is with us in the present and we're inviting him in, you know what happens to our future? It becomes far better, far better than we could ever imagine. And this word, by the way, is a word that is, speaks of what? It, it doesn't, you know what it doesn't do? It doesn't promise success on earth the way we would define it. It doesn't promise that everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to go our way. And it promises something far better. It promises eternal life in the midst of challenges that are temporary. And it promises eternal hope in the midst of circumstances that seem like they're hopeless. And it promises a strong fire of passion for the present that is never able to be snuffed out. Because at the end of the day, Paul said it this way, the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. And he is able to empower you and he who, listen, if God is for you, who and what can be against you? 
And filled with that, you know what happens? Our days and our steps in our present become steps that are hope-filled, that are strong, that are courageous. And when every step we take forward, we start to gain momentum. And as we gain momentum, we start to discover that we too have an arrow in our hands. And it is an arrow of faith. And with everything we got, we might say, Lord, I don't know right now if I like what I'm seeing, but I'm going to shoot this arrow into the future of faith. And I'm going to believe that you're going to create something far better than I ever imagined. And I want you to light my soul for what I got to do today. Oh, may that be the case. May he spark us because of what he wants to do in the future. In a moment, we're going to see if our time of giving and our closing song, I'd love to pray. And Lord, I thank you I thank you that you are the God who is able to step into our lives, who promises your grace always outruns wherever mess we might feel that makes us out of reach. That your grace is always able to convert our circumstances into something that you are creating that is beautiful, that is filled with life and hope, your light shines brightest in the darkest. I pray, God, that you would give us the courage we need and the ability to um, take a hold of the future you have for us. And you help us take one step in that direction. I pray for that in Jesus' name.